Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest and Mr. Travis Watts. Before we dive in, I want to ask you a real quick favor. Would you mind please taking an extra 30 seconds to head over to iTunes and rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it means the absolute world to me. So thanks for making my day with that review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Travis Watts is a full-time investor, passive income advocate, public speaker, and the director of investor education at Ashcroft Capital. He dedicates his time to educating investors who are looking to be hands-off when it comes to real estate investing. Travis, welcome to the show. Andrew, thanks so much for having me. Thrilled we could make this happen. Yeah, I'm excited. Would you mind starting out by telling us your story and how in the world you got into passive investing and investor education? Sure, happy to. Yeah, so I got the real estate bug in uh, 2009. I knew real estate was something, you know, before that, years before that, that I ultimately wanted to dive into. The timing wasn't right for me. Uh, I was going through college, didn't know where I wanted to settle down, didn't really have the the funds to allocate early on anyhow. And so 2009 was kind of the, the perfect storm, both in a negative and a positive way <laughs> for me. So it was just that rare opportunity of real estates on sale and the government's given out a first time home buyer credit. And I started with house hacking, which is having a roommate, you know, just bought a house for myself, had a roommate that basically covered my mortgage. And that started to give me the bug for passive income, right? So a lot of people are taught, including myself, buy low, sell high. And there's nothing wrong with that strategy inherently. It's just that it doesn't work in all stages of market cycles long term, right? So it's a, it's a periodic uh, strategic strategy. But passive income can be a lot more reliable. It can be a lot more stable. And what I found is by building up diversified passive income streams, uh, someone can actually build lifestyle design, which is, again, something not taught by really anybody. <laughs> but it's just this idea of increasing your lifestyle and how you want to live your life using passive income to get there. So early on, I did flips, vacation rentals, single family. And in 2015, 16, I moved into syndications, real estate, private placements uh, in mobile homes and uh, multifamily apartments and self-storage and car washes. And then in some alternatives like uh, ATM machines and, and note lending and uh, things like that. So at the end of the day, everything I do is a cash flow focus. Ideally, tax benefits and equity upside are other components uh, built into that model as well. I love that. That is so awesome. You know, I love the lifestyle design and like really starting there, right? With the end goal in mind. And when I started, I came out of college, I jumped right into sales, right? And I was yeah. making really good money. My Both of my brothers are in sales. However, I was paying a lot in tax, but at the time yeah. I didn't, I didn't consider that, right? I was just, you know, right. doing okay, making <laughs> six figures, but Hey, I'm paying taxes, but Hey, you make a lot of money. You got to pay a lot of money in taxes. But I, didn't realize the the passive side of things. And it was like, I would sell and then I would get a commission check the following month. 
And then it restarted, right? On the first of the month, everything restarted where that passive income really was a a life changer, right? Where it's like, hey, these investments are paying me when I'm sleeping and you know, it's it's addicting as well. So huge fan of, of what you have going on there. Would you mind telling us what you think is the toughest hurdle that, you know, most people need to overcome in order to start, you know, passive investing into, you know, funds or syndications or any of the, the, the mentioned investments you talked about? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I'll be the first to admit that after six and a half years of doing everything actively on my own in single family, when I first learned about syndications and I'm looking through overviews and slide decks that are suggesting maybe I could make the same or greater returns passively than I was doing actively, I was very skeptical. I thought, there's no way this has to be a scam. I mean, why? Why would I go through all that work and effort if I don't have to, basically? (laughs) And to my surprise over the years, I mean, I I started with just doing one. Obviously, everybody starts that way. And I would say that right there is the biggest hurdle that I, I would encourage people to try to get over. Just commit to trying one deal. Maybe it's just a minimum investment. I don't know. You know, so for me, I was I was flipping a home, one of many in Colorado. It was about to sell uh, at the time I was learning about private placements. So I said, I'm going to take half the equity from the sale. We'll call it 100,000 was going to be my my gain or something like that. So I said, I'm going to take 50,000. I'm going to do one syndication. I'm going to give it about six months, maybe a little bit more. And I'm going to make sure I get paid these monthly distributions that they're, they're saying they do. I'm going to make sure this reporting is legitimate. I'm going to make sure that you know, this project's actually happening in real life and that it's not fake, you know? And so when I made that commitment, it became real. It's one thing to hear a podcast. It's one thing to read a book. It's even one thing just to hear a mentor. I was lucky to have two mentors that have been doing this 20 plus years after selling their their companies in the mid 1990s. And, and that's that made it, you know, the most real in my life at that point until I actually got involved. But But just take a first step. Man, you know, I mean, every everything starts with the first step. So I think a lot of investors, and myself included, it's easy to get caught up in analysis by paralysis, right? It's like, I have to know more. I have to learn more. I'm not quite ready. I'm going to read 50 books and I'm going to listen to 100 podcasts and I'm going to go to all these conferences all before you you start. I think knowing, you know, 70%, 60%, you know, of, of kind of what you need to know to get started and then just take a step in that direction, whatever that means for you. Yeah, no, that's huge. Wow. Yeah. Single family home investing, dealing with the tenants, toilets and trash, right. And putting that aside and investing in a bigger syndicated deal and getting the same returns completely passively is quite exciting. You know, because I know a lot of our listeners have started in single family, they build a small portfolio and then, you know, they, they end up exiting and, and investing in these private placement deals. So what, what do most people not know about, you know, private placements or, or syndicated deals? Man, you know, there's a lot to unpack there. I think for me, it was this light bulb moment of realizing how much more scalable at it, it is as a limited partner to, on one hand, have 100 single family homes, let's say actively that you're trying to run around and manage, or 100 limited partnership investments you know it's 
infinitely more scalable and more simplistic to be a limited partner. And so this is the thing that I don't think a lot of people realize because I know I didn't realize this is I naively started getting on that bandwagon of, you know, one buy and hold property a year, maybe two, you know, and then one day you wake up 30 years later and you got all these houses and you're financially free. But the reality is when you get to seven, eight, nine homes, this starts to become a full-time job, even yeah. with property managers. And see, that's what caught me off guard is I'm like, where is that passive income? <laughs> because yeah. I feel like I just signed up for a second job and I had. And so for me, I, I just, I didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel, you know? And so I think it, this is what I always say. Not a lot of people are like me in the sense that they were full-time active to full-time passive with like a little year and a half break kind of transition in the middle. Most people are a hybrid, okay? So it's all fun and games and good, perhaps for you, the listener, to have a couple of your vacation rentals, a couple of your single family rentals, whatever you got going on actively, but then to scale through syndications, you know? And so that's what I taught my dad who retired with, you know, well, multiple income streams, but he had seven single family rentals, but he knew if I had 14 of these, I'm going to be a full-time landlord. And that's not how I want to retire. That's not the terms that I want to live on. So he stopped at seven and he started doing syndications beyond that point. So every year his passive income continues to scale and grow. He still gets the tax advantages, the equity upside participation, but he's never going to have to manage more than those seven properties, which for him, he enjoys doing. For me, I didn't enjoy any part of that. So <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> to each I think their most own. <laughs> people, yeah, most people don't enjoy that, that landlord yeah. life. Yeah. Um, yeah. A couple of things that I had, you know, noted here of, of things, normal, like first time passive investors, you know, first time investors into a syndication, things they don't know is, you know, about depreciation, right? They get the K1, yeah after yeah. their first deal and there's like a negative number on there and they're like, Andrew, is this right? Like what, what's going on here? So that was one thing I wrote down. And then also uh, filing state tax returns, you know, typically if you're, you know, investing in a deal in a, in another state, yeah, maybe you could shed some light on those if you've run into that. Yeah, no, those are great points. You know, one thing for me, I had this, this other epiphany and it was that at, at one given moment in time before I transitioned to this passive route, I had all of my portfolio in about a 30 mile radius in one state, you know, virtually one mm. county, you know, one location. I got to thinking as great as the market is today, right here, right now, it's not always going to be that way. Everything goes in cycles. What if I was out in Colorado? What if Colorado decides to double their state income tax? What if, I don't know, there's some climate change thing, you know, tornadoes are, are running mm. through the area and destroying all my properties. What if insurance quadruples, you know, like there's all of these, these risks, you know, political, geographic. So I got to thinking, you know, there's a lot of great markets I'd love to be in, but I couldn't see how to realistically manage properties effectively out of state when I was doing the single family home game. And that's one thing I love about syndication investing is I can invest with you out in Tennessee or Texas, and I can do an Ashcroft deal in Florida and Georgia, and I can do some other operator up in, you know, who knows where, you know, the Carolinas. And so it doesn't really matter where I live. 
because I'm taking advantage of great markets and people who specialize in those particular niches. That's a great and point. To yeah, your point about taxes, just real quick, I'll just uh, one thing to piggyback on there. Not only you know all the deals I invest in, do you get that flow through tax benefit, like you were you were pointing out? But in a lot of ways, it's better because at least you know with with our group, we're doing cost seg studies on all the deals that we buy, and so you know we've got this bonus depreciation, and so we're able to to pass through to our limited partners a lot of great tax advantages that when I did single family weren't as lucrative because a cost seg study just didn't feasibly yeah. make financial sense to do. So, and for those great. people listening that don't know what a cost seg study is. And yeah. you can just give a little color on that. Yeah, you, you hire basically a, a, a third party engineering firm. You know, they come out to your property and the IRS has uh, lifespans for different items in a property, you know, uh, countertops, uh, cabinetry, light fixtures, ceiling fans, door handles, you name it. You know, so we're not talking about the land that the property's on. We're talking about uh, and not just the brick and mortar of the structure. We're talking about all the individual components. So what happens is traditionally say a refrigerator has a seven-year lifespan. I'm just making that up for example purposes. So that means traditionally you could write off that refrigerator if you buy one for a rental over a seven-year period. Well, with what Trump put into play in, in 2017 with the Jobs and Tax Cuts Act is the bonus depreciation, which is slowly phasing out. So you can take 100% of that in years past and write all of those seven years off in the first year. And this year it's 80% and next year it's 60%. So you're accelerating the depreciation. Now the cost seg is uh, itemizing each of these things that I was naming out, you know? And so they're showing you how you can maximize, um, you know, the write-offs for each of these items. So in layman's terms, I mean, I'm not a tax advisor or CPA. I'm not giving anybody advice. I'm just saying that there are great tax advantages in real estate. There always have been historically, but debatably in the last, you know, five to seven years, they're better than ever. And yeah. they're still great this year. And so if taxes is kind of what you're looking to uh, offset or decrease, definitely check with your CPA to see if this is the right fit. Totally agree. So I know you've invested in, in a couple mobile home park syndications, you know, yeah. yourself, what have you learned from these or kind of what feedback would you have for other interested passive investors about that asset class compared to, you know, some others? Well, the thing, there's two things I really love about mobile home parks. Um, first thing, I, I normally do uh, multifamily housing, and that's my bread and butter. And that's because the parallel to what I did in the single family space just really aligns very closely with that. But mobile home parks, you're helping people with affordable housing solutions, which we all know we're millions behind in affordable housing in this country. It's hard to come by. You're just helping the average Joe find a place to live. And you're truly improving their lifestyle, their community, and the way that they live. Now, obviously, you know, rents adjust upward, you know, after you're you're increasing the value on these places, but not drastically, not substantially, right? You're not trying to knock out the demographic that lives in a certain community and, and price them out, right? You're just justifying the improvements that you've made. But I love helping in the affordable housing sector, number one. Mo mobile home parks, in my experience, have had greater cash flow yield. And as I mentioned, I'm a person who lives on passive income and cash flow. So as I've looked over the years at self-storage and industrial and multifamily and mobile homes, usually I would say eight out of 10 times these mobile home deals 
have a higher yield. So if passive income is something that you're looking for primarily, um, you know, it might make sense to, to jump into one of those opportunities. Multifamily, historically speaking, in my own experience, um, can have more appreciation upside. It's not always true, but, um, you know, it's, it's kind of the bigger overall picture play there. It's yeah. a little bit different model, both essential to totally. our economy and people. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And that's something I've heard a lot from a lot of our recent investors is that social stewardship side of things like, hey, you're investing in mobile home parks, you're adding affordable housing to the supply and, and keeping that uh, asset class alive. Um, so I guess the, the big elephant in the room, Travis, interest rates are high. What are yeah. passive investors doing right now? I know you're talking to a ton of them. You know, yeah. why why invest in a real estate deal when you can put money in a money market account and make over 5%, you know, relatively risk free? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Really, the case right now for any syndication is going to be to look at that bigger picture IRR potential, right? When you when you you don't look at just the year one cash flow and then compare that up to a money market because yeah, they're they're pretty um, comparable, <laughs> right? So yeah. it's it just seems like yeah, why not take that safe bet with the safe money? Well, but the potential still there, in my opinion, depending on what deal and what operator we're talking about, to maybe have a double digit return in the next several years by factoring in the equity upside. So uh, whether we're talking mobile homes or multifamily or anything else, there's usually uh, three components. Um, there, there's the cash flow side, which again, with money market could be comparable depending on the deal you're looking at. But the tax advantages is something the money market's probably not going to offer you. So they're, they're missing number two there. And then the equity upside potential you know, is not going to be there with the money market. Now, that being said, you know, the psychology as we go through market cycles and as we look at, you know, we're, we're going to go through a recession or we're not or whatever, we're teetering on the edge of that with the inverted yield curve and the whole mess that's going on with the economy is people want to exit. They want to sell. They want to sit on the sidelines, right? They, they, they get frozen in fear. But the reality is that cap rates have shifted drastically over the, the last 18 months. And I'm going to talk to multifamily specifically right now. And all the deals I'm investing in this year in 23, we've been buying at about a 25% discount relative to previous pricing. So this is the buy the dip opportunity. And we're underwriting for interest rates to continue going higher. Are they going to go higher? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe so. But if they do, we factored it in. If they stay flat and higher for longer, as Jay Powell points out, <laughs> then we'll be able to execute the same way we have in years past when we were having debt at three and four percent, right? If we just hang out here at, at like these these six, seven percent mortgage levels. If they taper rates down in the next two, three years, this could be everybody's early Christmas, you know, yeah. 24, 25, who knows? And so that could pump even more equity into the deals, restart this market. And it truly would have been in that instance, the buy the dip opportunity. So I'm more bullish this year than I have been the last two years. There's the inverse correlation that higher rates hurt valuations. That's true. So for past deals, you know, hold tight if you can. And as it's been said, you know, you, you don't lose money in real estate unless you're forced to sell in an inopportune time. <laughs> so hopefully you can hold through. Uh, the saying is, uh, what, survive till 25. So uh, <laughs> we'll see what unfolds between now and then. I don't have a crystal ball, but um, it's, it's by the dip time, in my opinion. Yeah, 
Love that, Travis. What are the, the most common mistakes that you see, you know, passive investors, LPs, you know, making out there? Mm, mistakes. I would say there's a first of all, let me let me back this up with with some um some perspective for your listeners. So I've spent many years working in investor relations before what I do now. I kind of skipped over that part of my story. So both with uh, one of the largest brokerage firms here in the US and then with startup uh, syndication company and then on to Ashcroft Capital. So uh, I've spent a lot of time with investors. I've literally spoke to thousands and thousands of investors. And I would say I'm always one to uh, promote people doing their due diligence, you know, to, to really research these opportunities to really comb through that PPM, you know, to leverage help as needed to visit a property maybe before you invest in it, you know, all these types of things. I would say most people don't do it. And almost nobody is doing any form of, you know, background checks or anything like that on any of the operators, which I don't think is necessarily an essential thing or something that everybody needs to do. I'm just saying in general, there's there's a pretty big lack of due diligence. So just know who you're investing in and why that's important is because you're basically signing a piece of paper that says, look, I'm going to be in business with you for maybe five to seven years. And so the last thing you want to do is fork over a hundred grand and then realize I don't like this person or I don't like how they conduct their business or I don't like how they're not very transparent with me or I don't like how they never answer their phone or emails. And so you need to ask those questions and get some insight uh, prior to investing and try to match people up to your values as as best as possible. And what would you say specifically would be a, a good way to like vet an operator? You know, like like a mm-hmm. background check, so, you know, asking the questions, you know, they could lie to you. Right. So how do you how do you yeah. how do you properly vet a, a GP? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you can take it all the way from from the detailed step by step, you know, using services like a TLO for for background checks and things like that. Or uh, what I tend to do is this kind of like like circumventing that system a little bit. (laughs) First of all, I know a handful of LPs that do that level of due diligence. And so I'm usually asking who they're investing with, kind of, you know, what, what they found out, you know. And uh, the other thing is with groups that are transacting and doing uh, strategic business partnerships with uh, other large firms, I'll, I'll just name this as one example. Last year, um, Ashcroft was, uh, we, we sold a handful of deals to Goldman Sachs and we have a strategic partnership there. So before a company like that gets involved with a group like us, um, they're going through their own due diligence, right? They don't want to associate with bad actors in the space and things like that. So it kind of gives you a, a bit of a level of transparency that other people are, are doing that that due diligence. But ultimately, from layman's terms, I look for track record, number one. Uh, what, do you, what do you do as a business? Do you only specialize in that or do you do a, a multitude of things? How many times have you done it? What have the results been? You know, have you lost investor capital, which is not always like a, uh, a no-go. It's just what happened. What'd you learn from it, et cetera. Um, gut checks are important. I try to meet with people uh, at least over Zoom. I meet a lot of people through conferences and live events and, and podcasts like these. So kind of get a feel for people that way. Um, but no, I, I can I can honestly say I've never just like Googled a group and then decided, yeah, I want to do a deal with them, you know, and then sent in my funds. Uh, there's always been one, two, three conversations, if not meeting them face-to-face, knowing their track record, 
combing through the legal docs, having word of mouth referrals, references, or other people I know that have invested with them, knowing they're a transparent person or company, that they're out there in the industry and in multiple ways, that they're not just doing their first deal. No offense to people getting started. <laughs> um, it's just, you know, it, it's a risk profile of mine that um, I, I tend to be a little more conservative that way. So um, those are just some high level pointers. Um, I'm always happy to connect with any listeners if you want to actually go through some detailed uh, checklist items, but that's some high level. Awesome. No, that's great. Would you mind sharing a little bit about Ashcroft Capital and and then tell listeners how to get a hold of you if they'd like to do so? Sure. So Ashcroft Capital is a group that uh, I, I was first just a LP investor with them for many years, and I came on board. It's um, one of their GPs is Joe Fairless with uh, the Best Ever Podcast, Best Ever uh, Conference every year. And I came on board to help them with investor relations. Then I went into investor education. And what we do is we hyper-specialize in uh, value-add multifamily apartments in Sunbelt states. So right now, that's North Carolina, that's Florida, Texas, and Atlanta, and the surrounding submarkets of Georgia there. So we buy garden-style 200 to 600 unit in size uh, apartment buildings. We fix them up, we reposition them, bump the rents and occupancy. We make them more institutional quality. And we're usually exiting or selling maybe three to five years down the road to uh, institutional players in the space that are looking for more of a turnkey model. So that's all we do. No new development, you know, no self storage, no mobile home parks. We, we just hyper specialize in that particular niche, fully vertically integrated with our own property management and construction arm. So uh, if anyone wants to jump on my calendar, you have any questions, either Ashcroft or other ashcroftcapital.com slash Travis would be the link. And you can download some resources there and get a hold of me that way. Awesome, Travis. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. That's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Would you like to see mobile home park value add projects in progress? If so, follow us on Instagram at Passive MHP Investing for photos and awesome videos from our recent mobile home park acquisitions. Once again, that's at Passive MHP Investing on Instagram. See you there.